1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribbin, and today my guest is Lloyd Bowen. Lloyd is reader in early modern history at Cardiff University, and today we're talking to Lloyd about his recently released book, John Poyer: The Civil Wars in Pembrokeshire and the British Revolutions, just published by the University of Wales Press 2020. Uh, Lloyd, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for
0: having me. Well, it's, it's great to have you. Well, um, before we start talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, some of your previous publications and maybe some of your wider research interests as well?
1: Sure thing. So um, I'm an early modern historian, a historian of 16th and 17th century Wales and Britain, I suppose. Originally When I did my doctorate, I was interested in quite sort of high political history of Parliament and things like that. So my first book was scrutinising the idea of how Welsh politics operated under the early Stuarts, James I and Charles I, in the lead up to the Civil Wars. And I was looking at the ways in which Wales operated by electing MPs, what these MPs did when they got there, and so on. And that book rather drew me into the more of the civil war. This period which I didn't cover in any sort of great depth or detail in my doctoral work, but which I found so fascinating and compelling, this political breakdown that engulfed the three kingdoms of England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and the ramifications of that. And so I began to meld my interests together to take a look at the Welsh dimensions of this, and I published some essays and articles and things on how the Welsh and royalism kind of operated uh, in the 1640s and 1650s. That got me quite interested in things like um, popular royalism, which some people think is a bit of an oxymoron. They think of royalists and they think of elite characters and gentlemen and big floppy hats getting drunk all the time. And I think there's a good deal of truth in that characterization. However, I got interested in how ordinary people reacted to Charles I in a positive way, or royalism, I should say, in a positive way. So I took the idea of looking at seditious words in the 1650s. Uh, when we had a republic, and the way in which royalists tried to articulate their support for the king. Um, and from there, I suppose, I've done some work on how royalist preachers uh, mobilised their constituencies. But I also got interested in uh, gentry culture as well, and I published some work on um, local gentlemen in, in Wales and how they interacted and spread news around in the 16th and the 17th centuries. So. I suppose my general research interests have been on the Welsh angle, but trying to incorporate that Welsh angle, shall we say, more holistically into the narratives that we already have about how the 17th century in particular functions um, on a British scale. So where do, you know, how does Wales fit into that? There has been an older sort of historiography that makes, makes Wales into a very special case largely written by Welsh historians, sort of thinking in a rather insular kind of fashion. I suppose what I'm interested in is thinking about how people of that period in Wales really were a bit like today. They were members of a much larger community as well as simply a Welsh one. Um, And that's been uh, a particular interest for me, and it's where some of the poem material comes out of.
0: That's great. And you tell us at the very beginning of the book that Uh, John Poyer, The Civil Wars in Pembrokeshire and the British Revolutions, was meant to be a pamphlet,
1: but grew and grew and grew. Tell us that story. How did that happen? Sure thing. In fact, the genesis of this goes back uh, a long way into my doctoral work. Um, I was in the Huntingdon Library in Los Angeles, and I was doing some work on the Earl of Bridgewater's papers. And he's the chap who essentially runs Wales in the 1630s, and there's lots of his manuscripts which obviously have ended up in Pasadena on the west coast of North America. So I was looking through this stuff and the Huntington Library is an incredible research institution, which has a big, um, obviously, printed section as well as all these manuscripts. And as I was going through these uh, these printed works as well, I came across a pamphlet that initially didn't look as though it was of any interest. And it has possibly my favourite... Uh, title of all early modern pamphlets, and um, it is um, an animate version of Mark for the satisfaction of contumacious malignants. And when I began to read this text, it was actually a pamphlet of significant detail, about 50 pages long, detailing what was going on in southwest Wales and Pembrokeshire during the civil wars, and it was written in 1646. Now, because of that off-putting title, nobody would ever seen it. And so I was aware of this pamphlet for a long time. It kind of bubbled away in the back of my head for a while. And then I began sort of tripping over another pamphlet here and another reference there to the civil wars in Pembrokeshire. I was aware of Hoyer, and we'll get into, I suppose, his story, which is a colourful one, full of sort of action and incident. Um, and I thought there's possibly something in here um, for a slightly longer treatment than just multiple or something. And so I got in touch with the University of Wales Press and said, I'm interested in this guy. I think there's something here which the general reader might be interested in because of, you know, we've got this kind of remarkable individual from nowhere who ends up in front of a firing squad shortly after Charles I is killed. And, and so the, the University of Wales Press were very supportive of that. And so I imagined this kind of thing that you would pick up on your way into Pembroke Castle, Uh, where Poyer is particularly associated with, you know, some uh, little pamphlet type thing. And, uh, you know, you would pick that up for three quid and off you'd go a little bit better informed about who John Poyer was. I sat down to start writing this and it just kind of, the more I did a little bit of research as I was writing, that kind of dialectical process of writing a bit, taking a, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And, The next thing I know, I, you know, I I have quite a substantial manuscript on my hands. And it's interesting that it didn't take a particularly long time to write it, which is, you know, I don't think I'm a particularly quick writer. But this kind of the kernel of the idea, let's say, was enough to sustain um, this other material that cropped up and this other material added to the color of the story, I think. And so in the telling, I grew more interested. And I wanted to tell more people about it. And so on it
0: went. (laughs) Well, you you say it didn't take long to write. It certainly doesn't take long to read. It's a big book, isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's dripping with footnotes and and archival research. But it's written in such an accessible, fast-moving way. Um, I actually read it at at one sitting. Uh, A fascinating story, quite apart from anything else, uh, of the trials and tribulations of a man from nowhere who becomes extremely significant and then seems to die at the hands of his allies yeah, almost yeah. almost immediately. Anyway, tell us, who is John
1: Poyer? Why, why, why does he matter? Well, I suppose one of the reasons I was drawn to talk about him is that not many people know who John Poyer is, or if they do, they know of him in a very limited sort of way. Um, and they know of him because he was involved in what comes to be known as the Second Civil War of 1648, and ultimately that is what does for Charles I First and leads to his trial and, and subsequent execution. Um, but people kind of know about Poyer, I guess, only as, a, as a, a sort of a little light on the horizon of the historiography in that sense. They just know that he sort of flickers into life and then, and then you know, he's, he's gone. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that what I tried to suggest in the book is that in fact, he's quite a significant figure for the parliamentarian cause, full stop. He's also quite a significant figure, I think, in trying to understand what's going on in South Wales in the First and the Second Civil War. And I think he's also quite a significant figure for us understanding how sort of provincial politics and central politics works in the 1640s too, because his royalism, that happens when he rises for the king in 1648 has often been seen as that of a, a turncoat, a man who betrays his his origins. But it seems to me that it tells us a lot more, in fact, about how politics develops very, very quickly in the 1640s. And if you didn't manage to sort of keep up and stay on the right side, you could find yourself in a, a really you know tricky situation. I'm not saying that Poyer didn't, you know, he didn't help himself. Uh, he was obviously kind of quite an irascible, difficult man. Um, and his enemies did for him, um, I think partly because of his character and his background as much as his beliefs, really. But I suppose when you ask, you know, who John Poyer was, what the book is, say, is trying to say is that he's he's more of an individual, more significant individual than you thought. So
0: you, you tell us in a really helpful way how significant he becomes in later life. But for the first 34, 35 years of his life,
1: what do we know about him? Um. This is another sort of very interesting dimension to his um to his background I guess, in that he was a real nobody. One of the sort of threads of the historiography about the civil wars in the sixteen fifties is that what you get is something of an overturning of the old guard. People who probably wouldn't have been in power before now end up in power. But it's really striking, I think, that you don't get many people from a background as obscure as Poyers rising to become a sort of a significant player. So, when you ask what do we know about him, I guess the, the fact of the matter is we, we don't know a great deal, partly because of that obscurity. Um, his enemies really play on this as a social critique. I mean, one of them says that he is a man born to nothing, sprung up from a turnspit into a glover, you know, a very sort of evocative image. And you, you know, you sort of think, well, that's his enemies talking. But when you dig a bit deeper, that really does seem to be the case, in fact. So what we've got is we've got a relatively obscure individual living in Pembroke, which is a pretty run-down sort of town on the middle est- on the Haven um, in the southwest of Wales. And it's pretty run-down because Pembroke was a medieval town it was a medieval centre, and a lot of sort of governmental and trading raison d'etre has kind of gone, gone elsewhere. So, you know, the high street is sort of empty. There are a lot of lot of vacant areas, and so on. The trade is not particularly healthy. And Poyer, after I did quite a lot of digging, it seems that he is actually a man who is taken up by a local gentleman just across the water from Pembroke Town itself, a place called Moncton. Um, it's just across the water, you know, it's just outside the town walls, um, called John Merrick. And he does indeed appear to have been a member of his his household community. So I suppose you could see this guy as something of a servant. Um, John Merrick, in his will, asks for Poya and another man to look after and take care of his wife in her widowhood. So it's clear that he became something of an intimate of this local gentleman. And the Mayrics are quite interesting because they bring you into the ambit of um, the Deverer family, the Earl of Essex, who originally come from Pembrokeshire. And, of course, the Earl of Essex goes on to become the leader of Parliament's army in 1642. And Poyer is moving in these relatively unrefined circles, I suppose, when you're looking at it from a metropolitan perspective. What he does, however, is he manages to become something of a a significant local mercantile figure. He's trading with Bristol, he's trading along the south coast of Wales and the southwest of England. He's trading in skins and butter and these kind of things are the produce of the local community. And you can see where that kind of social critique of his gentry elders come uh, come from, you know, that he is a man of mean birth and mean education, a one-time kitchen boy. And he does indeed become a glover. So a man who is working... With skins, with uh, finished goods, exporting them down to the southwest of England, into Bristol in particular. Um, and so he manages then, it seems, somewhat by the assistance of this guy, John Mayrick, but largely I think of his own sort of, um, you, you know, off, off his own bat, to make some, make some decent money, um, to get in with another individual in the local community, a man called Hugh Owen who will represent uh, Parliament on a number of occasions, and to build up a little bit of um, prosperity and uh, a a little bit of, uh, I I wouldn't say notoriety, but a a little bit of prominence in the town of Pembroke itself. And what he manages to do um, ultimately is to get himself elected to that small town's highest official position. So he manages to become the uh, mayor of the town in October 1641. And October 1641, as you know, is a very key date um, because that is when we have the Irish rebellion uh, of Irish Catholics and he is sort of thrust into the limelight, I guess, of politics from that point on.
0: Now, somewhere along the way, he he marries extremely well too, doesn't he? And that marriage... Introduces him to a brother-in-law eventually, who'll become
1: quite a significant uh, element in his life story. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so he marries um, a woman who actually lives who lives who actually lives just down the road from where I actually currently live in Glamorgan, um, a place called um, Cottrell, uh, and his his wife um, Elizabeth is the daughter of. Another very colourful individual, Mancoser Thomas Button, who was a vice-admiral of the Navy, who in 1612 to 13 had gone to look for the Northwest Passage and become icebound in Hudson Bay. He had a fairly significant um, landed interest. But he also, importantly, um, has interests that look west, that look towards Carmarthenshire and Pembrokeshire, and he has estates there. And so um, the, the... the family who used to own is a state with Amerixt. And so I think that there's a Merit connection that brings the these two sort of um, families within one another's orbit. And indeed, he does marry the daughter um, of Sir Thomas Button. And the other daughter of Sir Thomas Button uh, marries a man called Roland Larne. And Roland Larne comes from a place just down the road from Pembroke and Brides. And so John Poyer and Roland Larne our brother-in-laws through their marriages to these two sisters. And again, historians haven't noticed this for reasons that escape me, but Roland Lahn becomes the principal military figure, I guess, in Parliament's armies in the first civil wars. He really is um, a powerful and important figure when Parliament gets the upper hand in rolling back the royalist tide there. And Roland Lahn ultimately will end up in rebellion with his brother-in-law, John Poyer, in 1648, and will stand for his life and ultimately be condemned to death alongside him. Although, as we'll get on to, I guess he he, he manages to see himself into the Restoration and into a seat in Parliament in the Cavalier Parliament. But um, yes, um, I think through these trading connections and through his increasing prosperity, but also his local contacts with people like the Mayrics. And the lands. He um, he managed very well uh, and he's relatively newly married I think when the political crisis of the civil wars happened.
0: Okay so it's October 1641. Poyer is about I don't know 34 35. He's yeah. the mayor of Pembroke and all of a sudden boatloads of refugees turn up from
1: Ireland. What's happened and how does he respond to this? Yes, that's right. So this is an electrifying experience for the politics of not just Ireland, of course, but of England and of Wales and of Scotland as well. The um, the Catholic Irish population have um, risen up after a relatively limited sort of uprising in Ulster that spread right throughout Ireland and has generated really um, lurid accounts of atrocities and um, massacres against the sort of Protestant settlers there. Uh, it is, of course, hugely controversial as to how representative they are that those accounts are. But the accounts that flood into England and Wales are of these um, of these atrocities that are going on across the Irish Sea, and because of the destabilized politics since. 1640, the calling of the Long Parliament, you could say even uh, from the beginning of the Covenant Uprisings in 1637, this kind of hits an already polarised sort of situation in England and Wales. And if you're in Pembroke, if you're in Pembrokeshire, I think, you really begin to think about this as all your fears are beginning to come true because... We might talk a little bit of, uh, in today's politics about the sort of conspiracy theories and ideas that are circulating. In the 17th century, there was this really compelling narrative about how, what was happening and what would happen in the future as regards the, you know, the nefarious designs of the Catholics against the Protestants right throughout the Three Kingdoms. And when this Irish rebellion happened, it looked as though all those worst fears were really coming true. And when you have these refugees coming out of Ireland, these Protestant refugees who perhaps had been, um, you know, stripped of all that they owned and of their clothes and, uh, you know, their property and so on, in a wretched state coming ashore, it really did look as though all of those terrible stories, those terrible prognostications which had been circulating, um, you know, were coming to pass. And the kind of yellow press of the day augmented these anxieties, I think, and blew them up too. But there was a genuine sort of fear that what you were looking at was the beginnings of potentially kind of an invasion from Ireland of Catholics coming over to, um, you know, to, to reap against the, um, the Protestant populations of England and Wales, what they'd done in Ireland too. And so from Poyer's perspective and from a lot, you know, a lot of the people's perspective on that coast, they were really, really terrified. Interesting sort of thing is, however, is that because the political situation is already quite polarized and unstable in England and Wales at this time, people didn't react to that in one harmonious unified fashion. They didn't sort of simply or um, get behind one banner as it, because they were suspicious, for example, of allowing Charles I, who some people thought were perhaps in league with some of these Catholic forces, to, let's say, have control of the militia to put down this rebellion. And so some people rallied around the crown and the church as sort of a bastion of authority and order at this time. But there were others who felt that, you know, actually what we need to do was to put the response to this, if you like, in the hands of Parliament, and the people who had shown themselves willing to stand up to Charles I's more authoritarian, problematic kind of policies. And um, Poyer evidently is one of those who responds in that way. He seems to think that this Catholic threat is an apocalyptic, potentially apocalyptic sort of um, uh, episode. And the way that he thinks that we need to respond to this is to look to Parliament and their authority on the coasts to get their assistance to put down any potential Catholic invasion and to make sure that um, this sort of key strategic area of southwest Wales, which could, of course, provide a real bridge for Catholics coming in through South Wales and into England, that that is defended as strongly as possible. And in that strategic position, Pembroke is a, a key, keystone, if you like, making sure that that wall of Protestant sort of uh, defensive arrangements is kept intact. And so as mayor, at this point, he has a real influence and a real authority, I think, to try and suggest to the locals that we should look to parliament, we should rally behind the parliamentarian flag, um, and make sure that this doesn't fall into the hands of potentially a fifth column of Catholics that could betray us. And
0: his decision to ally himself with parliament is so significant, isn't it? Because taken as a whole, Wales tended to support the king in the Civil War, didn't it?
1: That's correct. Um, and Pembrokeshire, the county in which that uh, Pembroke is situated, of course, is, this, is, is the same in that sense, in that it's not simply a parliamentarian county. It is a county that is rather more balanced than most of Wales. But even there, you have royalists that are arguing against uh, John Paul. But indeed, the majority of the principality um, for reasons that I think have quite a bit to do with their language and culture and their association in particular, I think, with the Church of England that has been translated to them in the Welsh language in which they see Charles I as a real defender of becomes a a very important stronghold of Royalist activism. Uh, And South Wales... The Corridor of South Wales is an important, an important area of royalist recruitment. of It's called the nursery of the king's infantry, memorably, where Charles can pull um, reliable men out of. But Pembroke and Pembrokeshire stands out as this place that's equivocating rather more. Poyer is really important in that. In fact, when some of of the parliamentarian commissions come down to Pembrokeshire in 1642, they describe it as environed with ill affected counties around it. It really does feel rather as an outpost, but it's such an important outpost for parliament. Because if you lose this sort of um, capstone of parliamentarianism, then what happens is, if you like, the whole of South Wales turns red. And potentially, you have important landing places then for for Catholic forces, or indeed, should I say, for royalist forces who have been over in Ireland, flooding back through South Wales unimpeded and being able to assist the king in his uh, military campaigns in England and Wales.
0: Hmm. So Poirot gets really involved in the Parliamentary War effort. He holds the castle. There's a siege. Um, you know, he he makes significant. Uh, personal risks, doesn't he, to to raise finance, to get the material he needs to to, to defend the town, to defend that strategic castle and so on. But I think one of the things that's most striking about your book is the way in which it it reminds us that even in a moment of civil war, all politics is local. So how how, how does that work out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you say, Hoyer does indeed make considerable personal sacrifices um, he repairs the town walls. He galvanises the efforts of the people there um, to assist him in that effort. He goes on at considerable length in a number of petitions after the war about how much money he's laid out and how he's ruined his own personal estate for the war effort. And there's a lot to defend there. You've got the walls around the town, which were in pretty bad repair, and also the walls of the castle itself, which sit in the town. So he's got a kind of a, a two-layered defence. But your point is very well made about all politics being local, because of the balance of power. I guess at that time, sixteen forty two into sixteen forty three, you know, it's not a, a great period for Parliament um, in, in England, let alone in, in in Wales. And a lot of people are looking around and wondering which way they should jump, as and when this you know th- this thing manages to play out. And there is a, a social element that, that, that and social dimension to this as well that I think is important in that, you know, who on earth is John Poyer to provide the lead to tell me um, how I should follow? You know? oh, okay, his brother-in-law Roland Lahn is slightly more socially elevated, but you've got a, a significant proportion of local gentlemen, traditional kind of rulers of society, who simply um, are not on board with um, what Poya is talking about. And, and they are moderate, relatively lukewarm, not hugely activist, but nonetheless, royalist sympathisers. And important amongst these are um, a family. Uh, there are three brothers who stand out. They're the Lot family. They come from a place called Stackpool or Stackpole Court, uh, again, which is um, in the south of, of, of Pembrokeshire, the leader of the family is a man called Roger Lort. He has um, two brothers, John and Samson, um, and they back the Royalist Party in 1643. Uh, Roger Lort actually becomes the Royalist Colonel. They take uh, the another in, in, important strategic point, Tenby, which is another sort of walled medieval town. Uh, they take that from Parliament. Um, in 1643 from uh, Thomas Wyatt, its mayor. And so they hold a considerable proportion of the county by 1643. They sign royalist declarations. Um, they support the royalist leader in the area, Mancall, man called the Earl of Carberry. Um, as I said, they're not enormously activist at this point. But then again, there is not a huge amount of military action that's happening in Pembrokeshire itself at this point. They do, however, as you say, begin a siege of Pembroke, a siege of uh, uh, of Poyer, who sits behind these walls. Um, And at the 11th hour, if you like, Poyer is rescued by a parliamentarian, a small parliamentarian naval force, which arrives to kind of save his bacon when it looks like all is lost. And it's from that point onwards that this cadre of Royalist gentlemen rethink their original commitments to the Royalist side and begin to kind of talk about crossing the aisle, as it were, and um, coming into Parliament's camp. But even though they might do this, I think their hatred of Poya, Poyer's hatred of them, remains the constant throughout the remainder of the 1640s.
0: so we can fast forward the story a little bit into the Second yeah. Civil War. And in the Second Civil War, um, everyone has everyone appears to have changed sides, except yeah, yeah. you argue Poyer is basically consistent, but the world has changed around him. And suddenly his commitments mean something else in that new context. Just b-
1: t- talk us through that uh, briefly, if you could, Lloyd. Sure thing. So... This is one of the ways in which Poyer has been characterised that I think slightly does him a disservice, that he is simply to be understood as um, a turncoat, a man who turns his back on uh, parliament to fight for the king. At one level, that is indeed what happens. There is no question that Poyer issues a royalist declaration in 1648, and he was once a parliamentarian. However, I think we need to recognize one of the things that I said earlier on is really important. But Hoyer is a, a moderate in his religion. He is a man who follows the Church of England. importantly, when the Civil War is at its height, he bestows a pair of silver chalices on the two um, churches which are in Pembroke. That is not something that you do if you're a really sort of fiery Puritan. He is very obviously committed to kind of the sacraments of the the Church of England. What has happened around him, I argue, is that the people who were once these royalists who have come over to the parliamentarian side, they have made very fruitful connections with the emerging new model army and the more radical wing of parliamentarianism, which has come to be called independence. Poyer. And his brother-in-law, Roland Larn, they are on the much more moderate wing of the parliamentarian side. They are real uh, Presbyterians, as they, political Presbyterians, as they're called. Although uh, <clears throat> Hoyer himself, as I mentioned, is a Church of England um, advocate, like, say a Churisier supporter. And so they look with horror, I think, on the noises that are coming out of the New Model Army, and out of a newly radicalised parliament, about what it's doing, for example, you know, essentially abolishing the Church of England, essentially getting rid of uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which was seen as a key story, I think, for, for for John Poyer. And so his antagonism with these ro- these ex royalists who are now on the radical side of um, of the Parliament wing, it becomes very visceral. I think he genuinely fears for his life that these individuals are in a position not only to make sure that he is ruined financially, that he never gets paid back any of the money that he laid out, but indeed that they are going to be the ones who are going to audit him for everything he's done um, while he was in charge of the the Pembroke garrison. But he genuinely thinks that they are going, they are thirsting for his blood, as he said. And so... As the radicalism of Parliament is uh, encroaching, shall we say, on Roland Lahn's authority as well. Roland Lahn has got a military base, which is a kind of a bastion of moderation in the area. That's being eroded by Parliament. We're trying to put others, new modelers, radicals in his place. Poyer can kind of see, I think, the endgame in which he and his brother-in-law are essentially ruined and possibly put on trial for their lives. And so there is a good deal of discontentment right around the country. uh, What is happening in the post-war world, there don't seem to be any resolutions that are satisfying people on any side. But if you were a moderate or a royalist, indeed... You simply see Charles being maltreated uh, by the parliamentarian party. There's no real evidence that there's a settlement coming. It, it looks like there could be a challenge to your very sort of salvation as they tear down the church that you thought was, well, that you believe is, is essential to your um, your soul. And so Poya ultimately is driven to a position in which he defends those the, you know, the prayer book, the king, he fought, I think, not against the king. He fought against the idea that Catholics were having a malign influence on the king. And so what he does is he rejects the overtures of the new model army in late 1647, early 1648, to give up his command of Pembroke, And that leads to a, a concatenation of events, a snowballing, in which essentially what you have is a military mutiny that turns into a local insurrection that then snowballs into a much larger um, kind of revolt and rebellion which engulfs most of South Wales and Poyer is at the head of that. And
0: we, when, when we come to the end of his life, his death by execution squad and that incredibly filmic scene that you describe where an innocent child is asked to draw lots yeah. to decide which of the three prisoners should die
1: how does all of that
0: happen, Lloyd?
1: Sure thing. So, yeah, Poyer's rebellion um, turns into a siege of Pembroke Castle that ultimately is uh, defeated by Oliver Cromwell and the New Model Army. There are a number of sort of principles, I guess, along with Poyer. One of them is his brother-in-law, Roland Larne. The other is another ex-parliamentarian, too, a man called Weiss Powell. And they are sent up to London. And um, there is an air of justice on the parliament's part that people who have imbrued the country in blood again need to be brought to account for what they've done. This is the sort of mentality that puts the king himself on trial and ultimately, of course, ceases execution. Now, um, Poyer, Powell and Lahn are brought before a court-martial and all three of them are... um, Found guilty um, of, of, of of treason and um, of this rebellion, and so you're left with a situation in which it looks like you're going to have exemplary justice upon the leaders of the revolt. However, there are a number of petitions that come in from the family of these men. Uh, unfortunately, they were once in Worcester College, Oxford, but they have now um, disappeared but we have old sort of echoes of them in printed volumes. And this seems to have an impact upon um, the leader of the new model army, uh, Fairfax. And Fairfax intercedes and essentially brings in a bit of military justice, if you like, which looks pretty, pretty harsh to us, I guess, but was seen as mercy to them. When you had a mutiny, you didn't necessarily kill the whole company what you did was you decided well you know there is a a, there is a tenth of this company that will be put on trial and will die and that was done by lots and so fairfax in a responding to these petitions says okay instead of all three of these guys dying what we're going to have is we're going to have um, one man die and that can be done by lots. and the three men uh, remember Uh, two brother-in-laws amongst them, um, say that they don't want to actually have that power themselves over one another's lives. And so what they do is they get an innocent child to pull out um, pieces of paper on their behalf. On two of the pieces of paper is written the word life, and one of them is blank. And so, indeed, John Poyer uh, the child gets uh, the blank paper on behalf of uh, John Poyer. There are a number of petitions that come in even after them from his wife Elizabeth pleading for his life, but he's really got nowhere to turn now. You know the, the wheels of parliamentary and military justice have rolled over him, and so indeed he ends up on the 25th of April 1649 in Covent Garden, place where the New Model Army has been stabling its horses um, up against the wall, and uh, a volley of shots goes through him and um, to enter his heart and that is the end of his end of his life
0: and if we want to find out more about it despite the plot spoilers uh, we can look at your new book lloyd uh, john Poyer: the civil wars in pembrokeshire and the british revolutions published by university of wales press this year 2020 thanks so much for taking time to come and talk to us today it's been it's been great to hear more about the book and to hear your perspective in writing it
1: my pleasure it's been really fascinating to talk to you but before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Yes, sure thing. Um, I've actually been working on a, uh, an individual duel which happened in Jacobean London in 1610, in which um, a man was killed and there was subsequently a murder trial um, over this and unusually. I don't necessarily just go for things in which men get convicted and put to death. But um, one of them was actually um, convicted of murder, which was very unusual for this period. But he was pardoned by King James I after some shenanigans in the Jacobean court. So I have a book length version of, um, of that that should be coming out next year. And um, I'm also working with colleagues on a petition, uh, sorry, a a project called the Civil War Petitions Project. Um, And that is trying to bring together the petitions of men and women who were widowed or injured in the Civil Wars. And they essentially are trying to get military welfare payments to help them survive with their injuries afterwards. And that is producing... Uh, A website that's free to access for people to get um, insight into what what these people, how they told their stories about the Civil War, how they survived, how they described their circumstances and situations. And so I'm actually working on a piece at the moment which tries to get at the authors of these petitions and how they actually went about approaching things like quarter session courts and local assizes to get money from the state for their service. Well, those sound
0: like fascinating projects. Maybe we can have you back sometime to talk about dueling. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, that that, that would be fun. That'd be really good. But Lloyd, seriously, thanks for your time today. It's been great to catch up. Great to hear about your book. And um, thank you for your time and take care. I appreciate
1: the opportunity very much. Glad you enjoyed it. And thank you for having me on.
0: And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.